so last week, it was basically a preparation for verses 31 and following, 31 and 32, actually. This is a really important section of Scripture. Just, I think the reading of it would cause most of us to, to agree what I said last week. And what I said last week is that there are some portions of Scripture, and I think this is one of them, that due to what is said and the weight of what is meant, just the mere reading of it, you might say, I'm, I'm not sure what that means, but that sounds pretty important, doesn't it? Notice how our Lord does this in verses 31 and 32. I am going to interpret um, this passage as three results of the crucifixion of our Lord. He says, if, if I be lifted up from the earth, basically, these three results are sure to come about. Now judgment is of this world, whatever that is. Now the ruler of this world shall be cast out, and I will draw all men, all peoples, to myself. I think this is one of those portions of Scripture, not just those verses, but it started back at verse 23 that calls to our attention, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now my soul is troubled, verse 27. Father, glorify your name, verse 28. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This, he said, signifying by what death he would die. He would die by virtue of crucifixion up off the earth on a cross. Now, our Lord was in Jerusalem during the Passover season. The wider context teaches us. He speaks, I think, some of the most perplexing words he spoke while on earth in these uh, words that we have looked at, uh, read this morning. He spoke, uh, excuse me, and Jews and Greeks heard him. That's important as well, as we'll see and we've seen before. Not only that, but in the middle of John 12, 23 through 33, we're told that a voice came from heaven. We looked at that last week. That's pretty unique. It happened before three times in the, during the ministry of our Lord. So um, this is the second time. And after explaining why the voice came from heaven, why it didn't come and why it did come, our Lord announces to us how the Father will be glorified in what he is going to undergo in a few days. He goes from a troubled soul, now my soul is troubled, to resolve and determination, Father, glorify your name. So this is a... A glimpse, in one sense, into the human soul of our Lord. And the fact that it is the Passover season adds peculiar importance to the events that transpire, culminating in our Lord's death and resurrection. Remember what Passover signifies. So annually, this was one of the feasts, seasons, where Jews from the ancient world would go to the religious capital, Jerusalem, and they would remember the fact that when they were in bondage in Egypt, God delivered them. God told them to put blood on their doors, and he would, that would be a sign signifying that he would pass over them and not judge 
their infants, um, but instead would pass over them, judge others, and end up saving them. It's, it's very important that it's this time of year, especially since later on we read in the New Testament, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Paul links the sacrifice of Christ with the ancient Passover institution, and Jesus is here when that's taking place. So that great event of the past that they were celebrating in the present was actually a type of Christ's greater work for us, saving us by being condemned in our place and saving us from all enemies and all odds, especially our arch enemy, the ruler of this world. Now, there's tons and tons and tons of review in my notes. I don't think it would be good to go through all the review that I have here. The review is usually for me. Sometimes it helps people. Uh, So just remember, Greeks want to see Jesus. That's pretty important. Philip tells Andrew, and they tell Jesus, and our Lord responds, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Greeks are there. We want, sirs, we want to see Jesus. They go, tell Jesus. And it's, it's not as if Jesus says, hey, Greeks, listen to me. He just answers the situation. And it's out loud. People can hear it. So when he hears that Greeks are present, he immediately says, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And his death and resurrection are going to bear a lot of fruit. Now, you remember the phrase, Son of Man, one of Jesus, it might be his favorite self-naming title, comes from the Old Testament in a context where Daniel had this night vision and he sees this Son of Man figure ascending to the Ancient of Days, ascending to heaven. And once he's in this posture of heavenly enthronement, He's given dominion, he's given, what's the second term? I think sovereignty, but the third one is a kingdom. And we'll we'll read the text in a minute. So Jesus has this son of man vision from Daniel 7, 13, and 14, obviously in his mind, and it's triggered these words, now the son of man is to be glorified, the hour has come. It's triggered by the presence of Gentiles and Jews, during the Passover season in Jerusalem, the religious capital. Remember he announced in verse 27, my soul is troubled. Isaiah had said, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Isaiah 53.3, talking about the incarnate one to come, talking about the servant of the Lord. The prophets prophesied of the grace that would come to you, or us, Peter said, Scratching their heads, wondering about, or signifying through their words, the sufferings and the glories of the Messiah to follow. First Peter 1, 10, 11, and 12 there. So the prophets prophesied of the grace of salvation that would come through a servant of the Lord who would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And I think our Lord here, when he says, my soul is troubled, was contemplating becoming a curse for the cursed. 
He was musing upon his damnation, exhausting death. That is what that is what troubled his soul, yet without sin. Then he says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. He checks himself and he says, no, this is the reason I came. This hour is a a, a period of time. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then the voice comes. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Obviously, our Lord, in a posture of prayer, but audibly heard by others, addresses God as his father. Last week, we looked at the fact that he got in trouble for doing that because it somehow, some way in their minds, it made him equal to God. It made there to be two persons, but yet one divine nature. You know, It confused them, but it's the truth. But our Lord does it, and this voice comes from heaven. And Jesus says, the voice didn't come from me. It's not like I needed to hear this uh, to give me information I didn't already have. He already knew that. The name of the Father had been glorified by the incarnate Son by revealing things about the Father and the Son previous to the voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. It didn't come for my sake, it came for your sake. You need to learn something from this. And here's what they learned. Did you guys hear that thunder? Did you hear the angel speak to him? Remember those two responses? Thunder! Which is... Worse than angel. Angel's probably a better answer than thunder, right? But both of them are wrong. The voice didn't come for him. It came for those there. Now is the judgment of this world. Right after he says, the voice didn't come for me. It came for you. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. And then in verse 33, this he said, signifying by what death he would die. Okay, so here we have words in verse at the end of verse 32 that are signs that signify death by crucifixion. Note that our Lord seems to pick up where he left off in verse 28. A father, glorify your name. Now is the judgment of this world. I have both glorified it and will glorify it. Will glorify it through this truth. Now is the judgment of the world, of this world, whatever that means. And glorify it through this. Now the ruler of this world shall be cast out. And glorify it through this. I, if I be lifted up, will draw all peoples to myself. So that's why I'm saying these are three results of the death by virtue of crucifixion of our Lord. Somehow, some way, this judgment of the world, this uh, casting out of the ruler of this world, and this drawing of all peoples by the incarnate Son of God's death, somehow they're all connected to his death, flow out of it, come as a result of it. So, we're looking at verses 31 and 32 over the next three months. Focusing today on the words at the beginning of verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. 
But notice, there are three assertions here by our Lord and an indication of the relation of these assertions to his death by crucifixion. All these things are somehow, some way, related to his death by crucifixion. Now is the judgment of the world. Now the rule of this world will be cast out. I will draw all peoples to myself. So the best way, I think, to understand these three assertions is that they are entailments or results coming from Christ's death by crucifixion. If I am lifted up from the earth, three results will come about. Or we could put it this way. As a result of our Lord's death by crucifixion, three new things come about. So we're going to look at now is the judgment of this world. Consider briefly with me the difficulty of this verse. Please feel bad for me. I feel bad for Pastor. What in the world do these words mean? What is the meaning of these words, asks John Brown, who's a 19th century Scottish Presbyterian. He says this. This didn't encourage me when I read it. I scarcely know a question of scripture interpretation to which a greater variety of answers have been given. Thanks, John. Next book. So then I read all the other commentaries. This is like 30 years ago when I first did this. But I did it again in the last few weeks. I'm going, man, he's right. So-and-so says it means this. So-and-so says it means that. So-and-so says a little of what so-and-so said, but tweaks it a little. John Brown gives like six or eight different views by reputable commentators. I was agonizing with Sean earlier about this and my wife. He says this. Okay, he he states at least six views. I'm not going to tell you all the views, okay? Almost every word in this short sentence admits of being variously understood. What he means by that is the word now. You can understand it several ways. And we'll tease out what I mean by that. Judgment. Well, it can be understood more than one way, too. And world. So now can mean the very moment the words were spoken. I don't think he means that, but it could mean that. Or it can refer to a period of time soon to come and pass. Or a period of time soon to come and last. So those are at least three options. You feel, you feel for me? How about judgment? It can signify rule generally. Uh, someone is going to rule. Someone is going to have the authority to make distinctions. Judgment calls. Um, it can mean condemnation. It can mean punishment. It could refer to the judgment which the world gives or exercises. Now is the judgment of the world's going to judge my crucifixion. Could mean that. Or the judgment, it could mean the judgment that is given or exercised in reference to the world. Now, somebody else is going to give an authority to be a judge and have Sovereignty and dominion over the world, whatever the world means, because that's the next word that can mean a a bunch of things. And here's how that goes. Well, hold on a second. 
It could refer to the judgment which the world gives or exercises in terms of their view of the crucifixion of Christ, mocking and scoffing. Or the judgment which is given or exercised in reference to the world. So the first there would be, if I be lifted up from the earth, the world will give its assessment of that lifting up. The world's going to judge my being lifted up. The other way is, if I be lifted up from the earth, the judgment of the world, that is, the exercise of universal sovereignty, will be given to me as the Son of Man. Oh, I heard some rumblings. That's the view, isn't it? That's a view we all like, I think. I'm going to tease that view out pretty soon. But what about the world? World can signify mankind in general. Now is the judgment of mankind in general. All men. I don't think so. I think one of the views was, oh, he's talking ultimately about the last day judgment. The last day judgment doesn't occur when he's lifted up. Right? Because it hasn't happened yet. Uh, The word world can refer to Gentiles as contrasted with Jews. Now is the judgment of Gentiles. Probably not. No. No, can he do? Um, unbelievers as contrasted with believers, the world of unbelievers, Uh, an evil way of thinking and living, worldliness, now is the judgment upon worldliness. It could be. Uh, It could refer, world could refer to the earth and all its inhabitants and furnishings, you know, whatever's on the earth. Or world can actually refer to all of creation, the world of creatures. So do you see how what John Brown said is right? Now can have a bunch of different meanings. Judgment can have a bunch of different meanings. And world can have a bunch of different meanings. I told my wife, I'm not going to preach anything unorthodox today. So whatever I say, as far as I know, falls within the boundaries of Christian orthodoxy. But I might give a view of this text that either you haven't heard before or struggle to either understand or agree with, sorry, but you won't disagree with the doctrine, okay? The doctrine's scriptural, uh, and I'm saying this because I'm kind of trembling because I agree with John Brown. There's not a universal testimony like one voice from all the great minds, that I, the dead guys that are on my shelves. There's diversity, uh, and there's, you know, you can kind of put it all together and get, I think, what's going on here. So how are we going to approach this? I think this is the most consistent view that I'm going to give you here. And I'm going to ask two questions. Two questions. Number one, what is meant by the judgment of this world? And number two, how is that related to the death of Christ by crucifixion? Okay? What is this judgment of this world? And how is it related to the death of our Lord Jesus by crucifixion? So one way to find the answer to our question, what is meant by the judgment of this world, one way to find that answer is to remind ourselves of the context in which these words were spoken, right? That's a simple rule of interpreting anything that's written. Uh, Here we're dealing with the written word of God. Our Lord is in his last week on the earth. He knows some Greeks want to see him. He knows that the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. He knows himself to be the Son of Man figure in Daniel's vision. 
He knows to him is to be given, this is the words of Daniel, about the Son of Man. Our Lord, in his incarnate state, knows that to him, as Son of Man, is to be given dominion and glory and a kingdom. He also knows that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion, he also knows that his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not come to pass. He also knows that his kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed. He knows all that. So this is the context. He knows he is destined to have servants that will be honored by his father. Remember, he said that in the context. His soul was troubled, contemplating his wrath-bearing death soon to come. He acknowledges he came for this hour. He requests of the Father to glorify his name. The judgment of this world is a result of our Lord's death by crucifixion. So I'm asking a question. Could it be that the judgment of this world is actually a different way of saying, to him is to be given dominion, this son of man in the future? That is, dominion in the sense of sovereignty, control, or a governing ruler, rulership. If it's taken that way, world would mean everything over which the Son of Man, the incarnate Son of God, has dominion. Having been crucified, risen, and ascended, the Son of Man is to be given dominion, rule, reign, sovereign authority over all created things. So one way to answer our question, what does this mean? Now is the judgment of this world is to remind ourselves of, of the context. Okay, so that's what I did, just did. Now, another way to find the answer to our question is to inform ourselves of how other portions of the New Testament explain to us our Lord's current relation to created things. Or our Lord's relation to created things given his death by crucifixion. So, for instance, hear these words. This is a, a part of a prayer in Ephesians chapter 1. This is, so if the gospel accounts are here on our timeline, the epistles are over here, and what the apostles, the apostles of the epistles quite often do is they, they kind of fill in the theological entailments of the sufferings and glory of Christ. Jesus said things, by the way, John Brown said this, Jesus didn't be expected did, Jesus did not be, expect to be understood by what he said here. When I first read that, I go, well, well, yeah. You know, two or three times in John, John said, hey, we had no idea what he's talking about. But after the resurrection, we got an endowment of the Spirit that helped us connect dots from the Old Testament and the incarnate ministry of our Lord. And we went, wow, and we even wrote about it. So this is where we're at. We're over here at the wow moment, the apostles writing about the entailments of the sufferings and glory of Christ. Ephesians 1, Paul's saying, I want you to know three things. He's praying that they might know that God might endow them with three things. And the last thing found in verse 20 is this, Ephesians 1. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? So this power in execution terminating on the souls of believers according to the working of his mighty power. So divine power is executed toward sinners to make them believers, but already, uh, uh, not only that, but towards sinners 
who are already believers, they still have this divine power toward them. And it's the same divine power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Okay, so here we have the execution of divine power terminating on the human body of our Lord, causing the soul of our Lord, the human soul of our Lord, to be brought back into the body and animating it. And, same power, when he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also that which is to come. And he put all things, what do you think he means by all things there? What I'm saying is, in answering the question, what is the judgment of this world? We've got to put it in context. I did that. Let's see if the apostles tease it out and might answer it for us. What is the relation of the exalted mediator to all creatures, all created things? Here is the language. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church for the well-being or benefit of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I think that might help us a little to answer the question, what is the relation of the exalted God-man, having ascended, having been seated, coronated, as this mediatorial king with a mediatorial kingship? What is the relation of, of that one? It's, it's, it's weird, but to all creatures, one of dominion over, one of sovereign authority. This is one of the reasons why, by the way, the mediator between God and man has to be both God and man, because he has to do things to undo things that only God can do. But we'll keep going. Listen to 1 Peter 3.22. Who has gone into heaven, Jesus, upon his resurrection, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. I think that verse is going to come up next week. Now the ruler of this world and all his cronies shall be cast out. But here we have angels, authorities, and powers having been subject to him. The apostles then understood the current relation of the incarnate Son of God as enthroned Son of Man in heaven, the current relation to the world of creatures as one of dominion, rule, sovereignty, and authority. That's Peter, that's Paul. There's other passages too. Now, let's think through this a little. If you haven't been thinking, start thinking. I think we've all been thinking, right? Let's think more. Recall the fact that Paul identifies our Lord as the last Adam in 1 Corinthians 15. Remember that? Um, Last Adam language. So there's a first Adam and a last Adam. There's a first man. There's a second man. There's a first man appointed by God, stationed on the earth as a sinless son of God who represents others, who's a public person. There's a last man. Two men have been stationed on the earth like this. The man Adam, the man Christ Jesus as sinless sons of God who represented others. In way different circumstances, though, right? When Adam was stationed as such, uh, 
he was created outside the garden, then he was put in the garden, and he was to have dominion, rule over the fish of the sea. Certainly it must have meant beat the devil back from conquering my image in you. Of course, he lost that. Here we have the last Adam. Now, it's clear that last Adam has dominion as son of man, incarnate son of God, having died and being raised from the dead and ascended into heaven, his current session, we call it. But what about this dominion and Adam? Was Adam given some sort of dominion over created things? The answer is yes. And we can get that from a few places, but listen to Psalm 8, 6. Speaking of mankind in general, and first, it would be Adam first. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. How have we done with that dominion, by the way? You know that our own bodies are the works of God's hands. How have, how have you done with your own body in terms of uh, dominion over it, using it for only and exclusively the glory of God. Genesis 1.28 is clear with reference to the first Adam. He is told to have dominion. So he was given a, we call it a kingly position in relation to this terrestrial world. Who was the first king of the earth? Adam. Where is his palace? This is Puritan language. The Garden of Eden. That was the first creaturely king's palace and on behalf of his creator he was to be God's vice regent on the earth his sub king but how did Adam do with that obviously he didn't do very well that's why we're here you know we're not only here by the way because he didn't do very well with his with the, the dominion mandate we're here because somebody else has done quite well with the dominion mandate and nobody's going to stop him from continuing his work. How did Adam do? He failed his task. He violated the law of God. He sinned and fell short. Remember? Of the glory of God. Who's the first sinner? Adam. What did he fall short of? Glory. Whatever that means. What does the glory of God mean there and elsewhere? It means a glorified status for human nature. A better than the beginning status that could have been attained by virtue of obedience rewarded with that status. He did not attain to a goal set before him which could have been bestowed upon him by virtue of his obedience. So the first Adam had a more glorious state of existence than his created state left unattained. There was a glorious state out there for him to attain, Not only did he not attain to it, he did not attain to it by sinning, which brought judgment upon him and all Adamites. Divine judgment comes then, reading the first few chapters of the Bible, in the form of a curse upon the serpent, the woman and the man. The serpent, tool of the devil, got to the man through a woman. And the curse pronounced upon the serpent, God basically says, I'm going to get to the devil by a man through a woman. The world has been full of problems ever since. Matter of fact, 
Creation itself groans, figure of speech. Trees are going, please eschatologize this creation. Bring us into the new heavens and new earth. And, and that occurs when the sons of God are fully redeemed, not merely purchased, but the full application of that redemption The glorification of their bodies and souls occurs in the future. But until then, there's trouble all around us. We learn from Scripture that our Lord is called the last Adam. I'm going somewhere with all this last Adam stuff. He came to carry out what Adam should have, but didn't. Man was given dominion, but he did not carry it out according to the will of God. The Son of Man is given dominion to rule and reign in order to bring back order to a disordered creation. That's very interesting. Forget it. Through the reconciling work of the incarnate Son of God, the whole of creation is subjugated to him. Christ then is the conquering king, the subduing last Adam, and the Lord of creation. He is both Lord and Christ. The creation then is brought back to its rightful place, but now under the Son of Man, the last Adam, who came to destroy the works of the devil and purchase a people zealous for good deeds, using the language of various texts. So the heading I just considered was this. Another way to find the answer to our question is to inform ourselves of how other portions of the New Testament explain to us our Lord's current relation to created things. And doing that, you have to go back to the Old Testament because they use things from there to explain over here the wowness of the incarnation, sufferings, and glory of Christ. But finally, to answer our question, the question is this. What do these words mean now as the judgment of this world? To answer our question, we should hear the prophet's of the Old Testament. To answer our question, what do the words, now is the judgment of this world mean? We should listen to the prophets of the Old Testament. Now here's why we should listen. There's more than one reason, but here's a a good reason why. Peter tells us, I've referenced these words, this is 1 Peter chapter 1, um, 10 and 11. Peter tells us that the prophets, that it would be the writing prophets of the Old Testament, have inquired and searched carefully. They were students who prophesied, they spoke about the future, of the grace that would come to you, Christians in the first century, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, that's interesting, prior to the incarnation of Christ, the Spirit of Christ is me, is an instrument through which Mediatorial knowledge, saving knowledge, is coming through prophets. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ, and here it is, the glories that would follow upon the sufferings. Now, you can turn to Isaiah 49, 1 through 8 if you want, but we're going to listen to the prophet here. You can listen to me reading it, or you can follow along in your Bible. It's Isaiah 49, 1 through 8. Now, what, what I'm doing is I'm saying I'm trying to answer the question, what does this judgment of the world mean? And I'm saying, well, 
put it in context, we did it. Do the apostles, after the fact that these words were spoken, shed any light on its meaning? I think so. But the apostles tell us, hey, if you want to know what Jesus had as far as his Bible and the information that was recorded about him that would take place in the future from from their vantage point, uh, go read the prophets because they, the spirit of Christ was indicating within them the sufferings and the glories of that would follow. Isaiah 49, 1, listen, this is, uh, you know, prophetic language. There's a lot of metaphor, I think, going on here. But you'll get the gist of it. Listen, O coastlands, to me. And take heed, you peoples from afar. The Lord is called me. Is it capitalized in your version? It is in mine. I think rightly so. The Lord has called me from the womb, from the matrix of my mother. He has made mention of my name and He has made my mouth like a sharp sword in the shadow of his hand. He has hidden me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver, he has hidden me. And he has said to me, you are my servant. Watch this. Oh, Israel. Wait a minute. I thought this was an individual. It is. It's an individual that can also be called Israel. Can we call mankind Adam in one sense? Yes. But is there an individual Adam who represented mankind? Yes. Can we call Israel a corporate entity? Yes. But they failed a whole lot, didn't they? They need, they need somehow, some way, an Israel to be faithful. They have it in one individual servant that the prophet's talking about here who's going to serve in the future. And he said to me, you are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glor... Ooh. That's a good word, isn't it? In whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel is gathered to him, For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to him whom my man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, and he has chosen you, thus says the Lord, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. I have both glorified it and will glorify it. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages. Interesting, isn't it? We know from Peter that at least some of the sections of the prophetic oracles are terminate ultimately in our Lord Jesus. Now, here's another question. Okay, well, you read that. I'm not sure about all those verses. 
do we have any other place where this passage is kind of picked up? And you know what the answer is? Yes, at least two very important ones. Turn over to Luke chapter 2, 25 to 32. Uh, What's the song by Michael Card about Simeon? It's a really good song. First time I heard it, Pastor Butler, I think, said, listen to this. You know, Simeon's the guy. Simeon, right? Yeah. The guy says, all right, I can die now. I've seen the Lord's anointed. I've seen the salvation of Israel. Luke 2, 25 to 32. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was, there he is, Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. So some sort of special endowment is upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, an Old Testament thing here, the Lord's Christ, the Lord's anointed one, the Lord's servant. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. Temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared before all the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Did you hear Isaiah 49 there? It's exactly what he's thinking. He's going, Isaiah 49 is coming to fulfillment in my midst. You know what? Everything's okay. I can die now. Simeon sees in the infant Jesus the fulfillment of prophecy, a fulfillment which will benefit Gentiles and Jews. Do you want to know a secret? I don't know what happened with the next section of my sermon. What happened to it? But I do know this. I I said there are at least two places that pick up Isaiah 49. Here's another one. Acts something. I will find it. Twenty-three. No, it's not Acts twenty-three. It's in the Bible. You remember where Paul says, uh, in one of these Acts passages, um, the Gentiles started to rejoice after he says something. He actually gives a paraphrase of Isaiah 49, 7 or 8 or 9 or 10, I forgot what the verse is, where the servant of the Lord is set up as a light to the Gentiles and, and to the people, the Jewish people. Paul references that in an evangelistic context. Isaiah 49. This Jew-Gentile things happening in the prophets themselves. There's something else that happens in the prophets. It's not in the notes. 
When the Messiah comes, a remnant of believers surround him. And out of that remnant goes this law about the Messiah, the word about the Messiah. From that place. It goes, you know where it goes first? To the Jews. And then guess where it goes? To the Greeks. Not because Paul said that in Romans 1. But because that was the divine design as revealed through the prophets. So here we have this new thing, I think, Jesus is getting at here. Now is the judgment of this world. Now I am going to assume a posture according to the two natures that I haven't before. I have according to my divine nature, very God of very God. But as the God-man, this investiture with sovereignty and authority over all creatures is a new thing because it comes by virtue of his death on the cross. Which leads me to the next question. How is the judgment of this world, if that's what it means, a result of the death of Christ? That's for later. That's a, that's a good question. By the way, my two questions come from the guy, John Brown. He's, those are the questions he asked. And then he worked through the answers. But let's consider this. Judgment of this world. Okay, somehow, someway, the God-man... He's saying, he's not somewhere, he is saying this. My crucifixion is going to be the ground or basis upon which this mediatorial investment of, of authority, of dominion, of sovereignty is given to me as the exalted God man. And in terms of the relation of all creation to that authority, it's all under my feet. Ephesians 1, that's what Paul says, right? Made him as head over all things. And it seems to be all the creatures, all the created things. Somehow, some way, the mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, being a two-natured mediator, by the way, this is one of the reasons why the old guys say the mediator has to be both God and man. Why? Because you might wonder, well, Adam wasn't both God and man. Yeah, but the catastrophic things that have happened in light of Adam's fall require more than humanity to recover it. So here he is making this announcement in a strategic time of his sufferings unto death. He, he indicates to us, my soul's troubled, but he checks himself immediately. Shall I ask the Father to remove me for this hour? This is the reason I came. I became man for the salvation of for the well-being and salvation of man. And I have to obey in order to secure a reward that I will then, from that posture of reward, I will, I will then execute this son of man's dominion and glory and kingdom until the last day. That, that's what he's saying. I think, I know this much. 
It's not heresy, what I said. It's all true, okay? Um, but I think in answering and asking and answering the next question it kind of fills it out a little more. How is the judgment of this world a result of the death of Christ? I'll be asking the same question next week. How is the prince of this world shall be cast out a result of the death of Christ? And then the next week, I'll ask it again. How is the drawing of all peoples to myself a result of the death of Christ? Well, I hope um, it's been helpful. And um, I've been saying the same thing over and over for 20 minutes. I let the cat out of the bag pretty early as far as the view. And then been trying to justify the view, looking at apostles, looking at prophets, looking at Adam, looking at the last Adam. Uh, May the Lord... Bless only that which is his intended meaning by these words. Acts 13. Yeah, that's it. Thank you. It's Acts 13. You, you want it into the preacher's head? I did have Acts 13 originally on my notes, but I remembered after I spoke uh, that I actually pulled it out because it would have taken too much explanation. But you can read Acts 13 if you want. There is an echo of Isaiah 49 there. By the way, light. I am the light, the revelatory torchbearer par excellence of the world. Jesus, where does the light language come from? Well, you know where it ultimately comes from. Let there be Light, but also the prophets um, indicating the servant of the Lord would, bring, would be the revelatory torchbearer par excellence during his incarnate state and subsequent to that. Anyway, thank you, Sean. Let's pray and then we're going to sing. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your Word, we're thankful even for hard sections, difficult, deep sections, in many senses, mysterious words by our Lord. We thank you that we are this side of the cross and resurrection, this side of the completion of the written word of God, this side of almost 2,000 years of great minds thinking on these texts and helping us put the pieces together. We know this much. Though we love the Lord Jesus, we don't love him as we ought. Help us to love him more as son of man, as son of God, as ruler of all nature. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.